This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. Australians learned this week that soft plastics, which are painstakingly returned to supermarkets for recycling, are actually being hoarded in a warehouse instead. We look at whether our recycling system can be salvaged. Also, world leaders are gathered in Egypt for the COP27 climate meetings, but emissions are still rising. They're back now above their pre-pandemic peaks. Are commitments to climate change sliding? First up, though. The red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. (laughs) When Americans voted in their midterm elections this week, Republicans were expecting a big win. We will be part of a big red wave that says enough is enough. We've met an awful lot of people here, Corey, hoping for that red wave. Red wave. Red wave. Red wave. Red wave phrase that is thrown around indiscriminately and promiscuously by everybody. Do you see one now coming? But as the votes came in, the wave turned into more of a trickle. Where we stand right now, uh, it looks like the Republicans are on a path to get a narrow majority. But I just want to step back again and just look at this map. That's not a red wave. That's nothing like a red wave. Well, this is not the night Republicans thought they were going to have. Joe Biden is on the verge of being the most successful Democratic president in a midterm election that we have seen in quite some time. The midterms, as the name suggests, are held halfway through each presidential term to elect state governors and members of Congress. Historically, the best guide to how these midterm elections will go has been the president's approval rating, followed closely by the state of the economy. And so both of those look very, very bad for Democrats at this moment. So it's sort of a a perfect storm of fruitful conditions for Republicans to do well. However, uh, there were two uh, uh, X factors this year, I guess you might say. Molly Ball is national political correspondent for Time magazine. Number one, in June, the Supreme Court overturned the 50-year precedent, Roe v. Wade, that made abortion legal across the United States. Uh, That was a hugely disruptive event in American politics. And what we started to see immediately after that decision in, in, you know, special elections and so forth uh, was that voters very strongly disagreed with that decision and were motivated to vote on that basis, number one. So that helped the Democrats. Uh, And then number two, you had the Trump factor. And so he was out there behind the scenes at his compound in Mar-a-Lago, endorsing candidates, dictating to the party who they should nominate in all of these high profile races. And across the board, those candidates really under performed. Voters took a look at them and, you know, a lot of these were sort of hard right candidates. Trump's demand of a lot of these candidates was that they endorse his false claim that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. Many of them went along with that. Voters, it turned out, didn't like that. And so, you know, Republicans' failure to offer a sort of sensible alternative was the other factor uh, that worked in Democrats' favor. And the result is that we got nearly a literal stalemate. We may end up once again with a 50-50 Senate. The House is impossible for it to be tied, but it looks like whoever wins the majority, probably the Republicans, will have a very, very narrow lead. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. So if it is a narrow lead, it still means that the Democrats would 
no longer control Congress. What will that mean for Joe Biden's next two years as president? And in particular, I'm interested in what it means for U.S. support for Ukraine. Yeah. So we do expect the Republicans to narrowly control the House. We don't know if they'll control the Senate, and that's important. But we have seen Republican support for funding Ukrainian resistance, uh, it's been steadily diminishing over the course of the war. So at the beginning, Republican and Democratic support for Ukraine was nearly unanimous. Fast forward, you now get several dozen Republican votes against each new tranche of Ukraine funding. That to me, looks like a faction of the Republican conference that is not yet a majority, but is only going to continue to grow. And that, in turn, will make it harder for Biden to get any aspect of his agenda, including funding Ukraine, uh, but any aspect of his of his agenda uh, passed through Congress. So Donald Trump has hinted he'll be announcing his bid to run for president next week. But what does this result tell us about his grip on the party? Is it sliding? Well, you know, I, like many uh, reporters and observers of American politics, have been through this cycle multiple times where something atrocious happens that Trump is blamed for, and everybody says, well, this will be the moment that the Republicans finally abandon ship, and then they come back home because he continues to have the support of the base. Now, him being an ex-president and there being a new presidential race about to get underway is a new circumstance. And a lot of Republicans are really souring on him at this moment, including the Murdochs, who in their U.S. publications have been running some, some very negative coverage of Trump and some very positive coverage of his potential rival, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. So if that continues and if Trump is not able to continue to weaponize his hold on that faction of the party, that base faction that that so loves him. You know, I think we have seen since he left office, his appeal steadily diminishing even among Republicans. So it's really an open question if he's still going to be able to sort of bully the Republican Party into continuing to support him. And that's even more of a question when you look to Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who had a stomping result in this midterm election. States and cities governed by leftist politicians have seen crime skyrocket. They've seen their taxpayers abused and they've seen American principles discarded. The woke agenda has caused millions of Americans to leave these jurisdictions for greener pastures. Is he now the heir apparent? No, but he's certainly getting a very, very, very hard look from a lot of Republican insiders. DeSantis is someone who has been buzzed about among Republican insiders for quite a while now. He was first elected governor four years ago and is thought to have been extremely effective in that role. He ran for re-election this year, not only on a sort of culture war politics, right, going up against Disney on the issue of LGBT rights and that sort of thing, but also on his stewardship of the state, the way he kept the state open during COVID, uh, a decision that he now claims has been vindicated, uh, the way he's just run the state competently on on an administrative level, right? We're still counting votes in California and might be for weeks. Florida held an election and counted the votes, you know, within an hour after the polls closed. So things like that he can point to as saying, this isn't just sort of bluster on my part, like you might get from Trump. Uh, It's actual effectiveness in the policies that Republicans are looking for. So on the one hand, is he sort of Trump-like? 
yeah, nobody's going to be able to be as sort of aggressive and bullying as Trump is. Uh, and, and plenty have tried to imitate him and fallen short. But DeSantis is, I think, the first contender to come along that at least some in the party think might actually be able to take Trump on. Ideologically, though, he's pretty similar to Trump, isn't he? And, and indeed, they used to be very close. And I think DeSantis, you could probably say, modelled himself on Trump. So, well, leaping into hypothetical territory for a moment, what do you think a, a DeSantis candidacy or even presidency would look like? It's interesting because DeSantis was actually in Republican politics before Trump came along. He was already a member of Congress, and Trump grew to like him because he watched him on Fox News. Uh, and as we know, Trump, you know, loves people who handle the media well. So DeSantis was sort of a conventional, if quite conservative, Republican in those days, and Trump sort of doesn't have a fixed ideology, but when he has one, it's mostly just sort of oppositional. So for the sort of Republican establishment, they view DeSantis as far more consistent. Now, of course, on the left, the view is different. They view him as a sort of proto-authoritarian. And so to the extent that that was many people's objection to Trump, I think they would certainly worry about that with DeSantis. But is he someone who would continue to insist that he won an election he lost. I don't think he is that uh, either uh, delusional or deceptive, right? So I think that the bargain that many in the Republican Party hope they would get with DeSantis is, yes, quite conservative, but in a more conventional, more traditional Republican way, but still with the ability that Trump has to fight and not back down. So the midterms was a better than expected result for the Democrats. And Joe Biden has come out of it looking well pretty good, certainly compared to how things were looking on the way into the, the election. So what does all of that mean for the Democrats and, and potentially Joe Biden in 2024 when the next presidential race will happen? Yeah, that's right. President Biden had not been scheduled to speak on the midterms until it became clear that the Democrats were doing better than expected. And then uh, he suddenly scheduled a press conference the morning after the election to sort of take a victory lap. And he was asked, as he's been asked before, whether he's running for re-election. If he runs, he would be by far the oldest president to seek election. And a lot of Democrats are worried about that because, you know, he, he is clearly aging and a lot of voters have questions about his capacity. But he says that he will make a decision and make an announcement potentially early next year. What about democracy itself in the US? Do you think it's a little healthier than it was before the midterms? Yeah, I mean, the election went down normally, right? There was so much hype about potentially candidates uh, refusing to accept election results. Uh, there was a lot of hype about you know, voter intimidation, potentially violence. None of that happened on any sort of alarming scale. So on the one hand, you can say, well, all of these liberals who were worried about that were just being hysterical and everything was always fine. Or on the other hand, you could say, actually, uh, voters... Uh, cared about democracy and voted on that basis, and that's why we're fine. Uh, but either way, it was a good day for sort of normal politics, normal elections, things going according to plan, voters voting and having votes tabulated. There are still uh, elections outstanding, and uh, the two big Senate races yet to be decided in Nevada and Arizona both have uh, Republican nominees who have embraced uh, and promoted Trump's election lies. So there is still some potential for shenanigans, I guess you could say. Uh, but yeah, it was a good day for democracy. In, in my mind, as a political reporter, every time there's an election, it's a good day for democracy. 
That's Molly Ball, the national political correspondent for Time magazine. Well, a lot of Australians would have been disappointed this week to find the soft plastics recycling scheme at their local Coles or Woolworths has been suspended. Red-faced supermarkets say it could be a year before they can restart recycling soft plastic. The company behind that program, Red Cycle, can't take any more. It turns out the Red Cycle scheme, which is meant to take those carefully collected scrunchable plastics for recycling, has for months actually been stockpiling them in a warehouse. The company says the amount of plastic being returned by shoppers has soared by 350% since 2019 and its partners couldn't process it all. It's of course not the first recycling scheme to fall over, so why is it so difficult to make them work? Jennifer Macklin is a researcher at Monash University's Sustainable Development Institute. Look, it's actually a function of the fact that over the kind of like the last two or three decades, Australia was in a position where overseas countries were actually coming and saying, hey, we really want that waste. We can do stuff with it. We're willing to pay you good money. So we actually got into a um, position where we were actually, the recycling we were doing in Australia was really just collecting and sorting materials and then sending them to markets overseas for the actual recycling to take place. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We actually send our manufacturing overseas. So it kind of makes sense that we also send the raw materials over there as well. But what it meant was we were dependent on other countries to take our stuff. What we found a few years ago, um, China was one of the main countries that were taking our, our waste, our recyclable material. And they turned around and said, you know, we don't want that any longer. And we realised all our eggs were in the one basket and they were overseas baskets. For the last decade, about half of Australia's waste paper and plastic has been sold to China, where it is recycled into new products. But not anymore. So since then, the Australian government um, has been working with state and local councils to say, well, how can we actually recycle more of our material here in Australia? But that involves building a whole lot of um, facilities and infrastructure, which takes time, and it also involves finding buyers for those products. And so what happened initially um, three or four years ago was we were dependent on our overseas partners and they could no longer take them. So we had all of this material being collected and nowhere to send it. And a similar thing has just happened now. Red Cycle was involved in the collection and sorting and was dependent on other companies to take that and turn it into new products. And when that demand dried up, their ability to be able to pass it on also was was undermined. And so hopefully it will be a very temporary pause. But what it's also uh, revealed is that we were really dependent on just this one organisation to actually manage all of Australia's soft plastics. And I think that's been a bit of a wake-up call um, for government and and for industry that perhaps we need to, to set up a more systematic approach to recycling this material. Well, why aren't there more organisations? Is it just that it's not very economically viable? Because as you say, you know, we've had this problem for a few years. Why haven't we been able to set up a more holistic, workable solution in that time? Yeah, so it it turns out that plastic is actually incredibly complex. We're not the only country having problems with plastic. All around the world, um, the recycling of plastic is is much harder than most other materials. And that's because, you know, we we tend to think of plastic. uh, You know, we we talk about it as if it's like one thing. But if we get down into the technical details, it's actually a whole range of different polymers that all have different chemical makeups. In order to recycle these plastics, we actually need to be able to separate them out into those different 
different polymers so that we can recycle them. So that no doubt makes it less profitable. That's right, because there's extra work that has to be done in order to actually produce high-value plastics for recycling. And it's even more complicated for soft plastics because what we actually can't see when we look at the cling wrap or the sort of plastic film on our products is that there's actually multiple plastics, different types of plastics that are all kind of um, welded together there. And so soft plastics actually can't be separated into their different types. So it needs a very special type of process to recycle it. And so there's only a few companies who have sort of actually developed these processes at any scale so far. It's it's a new space. And so, you know, one of the companies, for example, uh, was actually taking uh, the soft plastic and actually putting it into our roads so that we didn't have to use sort of the very environmentally unfriendly bitumen or not as much of it. Um, Another company is actually working with Nestle to say, well, can we actually use a small amount of it back into soft plastics? But these are all sort of newer developments. But again, we, we have to have the technology and the facilities to turn it into the new product. And then we have to have someone willing to buy those products. So there's actually two problems going on for plastic. This is clearly something that a lot of people are committed to, that is recycling plastics, reducing it, going into landfill. And and it clearly serves a a good purpose for society. So should the government be stepping in in a a sort of bigger way and and helping to, to make this a more viable industry? Yeah, absolutely. I I think we'll definitely see that. The federal government has already announced, in fact, some resources and some support towards this particular issue in the hope of working with industry. But I I think one of the things to remember is um, recycling is really important. It's definitely better than sending things to landfill. But if we're really taking a, a sort of holistic view, we really actually need to consider recycling as like a last line of defense against landfill. Because recycling actually, in the main, only uh, sort of recovers a a fraction of the materials and the the energy that went into producing the product in the first place. What actually has way greater benefit is, you know, the reduce and the reuse things. So focusing on recycling, we need to get it right, but we also need to move away from depending on recycling so that we're actually producing less waste in the the end um, that will need to be recycled. Is there a risk that people hear these stories and think, oh, what's the point of all this recycling? I've, I've been doing this for years. This has happened several times. It'll just end up in landfill anyway. So they stop recycling. You kind of lose that, that license. Yeah, look, that is a real worry. Um, and, and particularly the way that it's been framed in some of the media is, is a little bit disappointing um, and a little bit worrying. I think what we need to really understand is that this is a really major transition that Australia is going through. As I said, from exporting our waste to people overseas who wanted it, to needing to build that technology in those markets here in Australia. And that's like a decades long transition. So there are going to be bumps in the road on that transition. And I think we actually just need to understand how complicated this is and and be patient and be willing to go along with the process and know that there are some things that are working really well now. The states that have, for example, the return and earns where you can take your beverage containers back, they're producing some really great outcomes. Our yellow bins are actually operating pretty well. There's definitely some you know improvement that can be happened there, but they're actually doing a pretty good job with our yellow bins. And soft plastics was doing a good job until you know uh, a few kind of uh, things happened. So if a small amount of things are going to landfill now, that's a shame. But if it means that we can set up a 
better system, a better process so that in five or 10 years we're doing even better things. That's, I think, where we have to sort of pin our hopes. Jennifer Macklin there, a researcher at Monash University's Sustainable Development Institute. When global leaders gathered last year for the COP26 climate meeting, they had a message. The science is clear. We know what to do. First, we must keep the goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. It was the goal of the 2015 Paris Agreement to keep global warming well below 2 degrees and preferably to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But emissions have kept on rising and when leaders reconvened this week for the COP27 climate meetings, hopes for that target weren't high. Friends, we are not currently on a pathway that keeps 1.5 in reach. Alok Sharma there, the outgoing COP president. How many more wake-up calls does the world, do world leaders actually need? A third of Pakistan underwater. This year, the worst drought in 500 years in Europe, in 1,000 years in the US, and the worst on record in China. Richie Merzian is the Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Program Director and a former Australian climate negotiator. It's a tough one because you want to be ambitious, you want to do what's right, but at the same time, once you see what's been put on the table, then 1.5 is still not within reach. Uh, And so the point is being made that, well, we still need to do as much as we possibly can. We still want to see every bit of climate action put on the table. And that's why there's this tension right now In the last 12 months, things have gotten worse. You have an energy crisis, you have a war, you have countries reaching for whatever they can to keep the lights on. That has meant more fossil fuels often from a number of European countries being used in their grids. And you have increasing tensions between the two largest emitters, the United States and China, who need to cooperate. Their cooperation in Glasgow last year was a key feature of the success and they should cooperate now in order to help keep those temperatures down. So things have gotten harder At the same time, the hope remains on the table and you've still seen a number of leaders show up at this COP and say, yes, things have gotten bumpy, but we're still keeping to our long-term goal. 1.5 is still the goal and it's still live on the table. We have seen seven years of increases when it comes to emissions and and they are now back above pre-pandemic levels. What does that mean for the effects of climate change around the world now and looking forward? Yeah, unfortunately, climate change impacts are not a future concern. They're happening now. And in the Australian Institute's Climate of the Nation 2022 report, for the first time ever, Australians are saying, yes, climate change is causing more floods now. It's causing more fires and more droughts and more sea level rise now. And that same thing is applying across the world. You had those devastating droughts and floods in Pakistan You've had a number of impacts in the developed world as well. So it basically every fraction more means you're going to see more storms, more superstorms that are more intense, more heat waves that are more intense, more floods that are more intense, more fires that are more intense. So all the impacts increase one more notch up, and that's why every little bit has to count. Does that mean we're now seeing sort of additional focus at this COP on adaptation, you know, and, and on loss and damage and compensating countries that, that are already facing losses. Yes, we've never seen the issue of compensation as prolific as at this particular COP. Because for the last 30 years, the priority has been let's reduce emissions 
as the best way of avoiding dangerous climate change. Then more recently, it's been a question of, well, are we spending enough money to adapt to those unavoidable impacts that we know are in train regardless because we've already passed 1.1 degree of global warming. And now the conversation's gotten to, well, yes, we can build up our resilience, but there are damages now. There are damages that in some countries can wipe out their entire GDP, including in the Pacific and in the Caribbean. And so how do we compensate those on the front line with the least responsible for climate change and also are some of the least wealthy countries in the world. And it's a hard conversation talking about compensation because it means liability. It means wealthy countries that have industrialized are liable for these impacts. And therefore, the issue has really struggled to land in a way where everyone can agree. So what do you mean by they're liable? Is it kind of an admission that they're responsible directly for it and and could open the door to to much bigger compensation? Is that the concern? That is the concern. Industrialised countries aren't traditionally responsible. They've used the opportunity of industrializing and the emissions that came with it um, to reach their levels of wealth and their qualities of life. And so the question is, well, are you willing to therefore pay for the damages that are inherent in the pathway you took to industrialize? We're at a stage now, though, where the majority of emissions are coming from developing countries, those middle-income countries that are growing their economies as well. And so this tension of, well, who ultimately needs to pay? And the UN Secretary General has said, the litmus test for this particular conference is a question of progress on this issue of loss and damage. And I think that's setting it up to fail because it's an intractable issue. It's one that's been going on for ages. It does have this issue of liability that's tied to it. And therefore, you're going to see developed countries wary of signing up to this. And also, there's a question of quantum. Will there ever be enough to meet these rising damage bills? So what's been promised when it comes to loss and damage and, and what's actually been done? What's been agreed to date is setting up a network of experts, figuring out what are the best ways that you can build your resilience and you can build back quick, how we can mobilize faster in terms of those responses, those emergency responses. It's not a question that the countries aren't willing to come to the fore when there's an emergency. And we've seen this at home. If there's a devastating storm or flood, or even when it's not climate related, like an earthquake, Australians you know, are generous in terms of finding ways to help. But can we organize that in such a way that we can preempt it? And that's, that's sort of the question now. And do we need a purpose-built fund or a facility, it's being called here, to pour money into? And currently, only a few developed countries, smaller ones, are willing to tip a little bit of money in, and it's quite small. It'll probably only cover the expenses of setting this up rather than actually compensating countries for the damages. So, look, watching global climate talks from afar, it, it seems like every year there, there are great plans, there, there are lots of meetings, lots of talking, and, and commitments too. But when it comes to action, there's kind of fewer concrete commitments as well. Is, is that a fair assessment of, of how these talks go? These talks often get a bit of a whack in, in, in the international media because of the pace they move at, and they're incremental. All decisions have to be taken by consensus. That's almost 200 countries agreeing on every little bit of progress. And so it will always, I think, disappoint people when you match that up to the urgency that's required for climate change. But the other problem, I think, is that there's always an elephant in the room. We often talk about how we can reduce emissions by changing how we get our electricity or how we drive our, you know, which cars we drive. But the other question that needs to be solved if we want to unlock progress 
is how do we deal with fossil fuel production? And that's not even talked about. The words fossil fuels aren't even in the Paris Agreement, but it's the other part of the equation. How do we stop the problem? How do we stop opening up new gas and coal mines as well? And until we also deal with that part of the equation, I think we'll still fall short of the progress we need to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. Richie Mersian there, the Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Program Director. And that's this week's episode. If you liked it, you can subscribe to This Week. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 